Hello, and welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. I am a psychotherapist, and I own a private group practice called Head Heart Therapy in Chicago, Illinois. And I'm just so happy that you're here today. Might sound super cheesy, but I am happy. It's kind of amazing that I'm sitting in my closet right now, and I'm doing something that I really am passionate about and I love, and I'm in my closet, and then people listen. That just, it blows my mind every time. So thank you for being here. I appreciate you. I hope you feel appreciated. Today's guest is somebody who, you know, you have these Facebook friends that you may have known, you know, years ago or or whatever, and they're people that you don't talk to on a regular basis, but you appreciate them from afar. And then when you do get a chance to talk to them, you're like, oh my God, I love this person. That is the experience that I had with Rebecca Ching, and I was just really excited to reconnect with her and have this amazing conversation, and then we ended up talking more later, and just she is an incredible person, and I'm really, really glad that I get to share this conversation with you. So to tell you a little bit more about Rebecca... Rebecca Ching, LMFT, is a leadership developer, speaker, psychotherapist, writer, and workshop facilitator. She's the CEO and founder of Potentia Family Therapy in San Diego, California, and is a certified Daring Way facilitator and consultant and certified internal family systems therapist. Rebecca has also started Rebecca Ching Leadership Coaching and Consulting, where she develops leaders through coaching and workshop experiences. She lives in San Diego, California with her husband and their two children, where they enjoy cooking, going to farmer's markets, all the things ocean and outdoor sports. So please enjoy my conversation with Rebecca. Hello, Rebecca Ching. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Hello, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited. And we can talk about how we met, but the reason that I reached out to you to be on the podcast specifically is a couple of weeks ago, I had a long road trip and I was like, oh, what am I going to listen to podcast wise? And I'm flipping through my usuals and I go to the Radical Therapist podcast and I see your name and I was like, well, holy shit, I'm going to listen to one of my old CDWF friends. That's awesome. And it was amazing. It was such a great interview. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool to hear. I know. I just, I love that. I love seeing, especially women, like, yeah, men, okay, great when you get your stuff. But I just love seeing my women friends like taking over the world with rainbows and unicorns. I feel like you're one of those people. Thank you. Even though I have a weird unicorn issue, I have to explore that in my own trauma work. They make me, they make me want to punch things. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And I have so so many unicorn friends who claim it. I'm like, I got to work on this because there's unicorns Oh, no. Yes. Okay. So I I shall refrain from the unicorn talk. Is it like almost like clowns for people? (laughs) Maybe. That's actually interesting. I don't know. I don't know. It's a weird thing, but people look at me and are very confused. And that's just funny. And it's nothing against the concept of the unicorn. It's just... I don't know. There'll be another podcast and yeah. I'll be unpacking my unicorn issues. So. Follow up, follow up. <laughs> Hilarious. Yes. So why don't you start off by telling people who you are and what you do? Sure, sure. I wear several hats. I have a company called Potentia Family Therapy, which is an integrated mental health practice based in San Diego, where we treat the whole person and the whole spectrum of mental health struggles, but also offer specialized care with trauma and anxiety, disordered eating, addiction, compulsive behavior, perinatal mental health, shame and perfection struggles, in addition to entrepreneur health and wellness. 
this amazing team now of clinicians and dietitians and yoga therapists, and it's a dream to lead in 2019. I'm also starting a new company that is focusing a lot on established entrepreneurs, business owners, and leadership, helping them navigate the curveballs of business and life without sacrificing their own relationships, their own well-being, or their bottom line. And that's been a blast too. You are really, really good with the elevator pitches. Because <laughs> it didn't sound rehearsed, but it was so concise. I'm going to listen back to this and like take notes and figure out, <laughs> insert head heart stuff here. That's, you're great. Uh, well, it takes practice though. I think when you get yeah. clarity, when you believe in something in your heart, then it flows. Right. But if it doesn't feel like you're owning it, then that's mm -hmm. when it feels funky. And I felt like that's been that way for a long time. But mm -hmm. that's been about two and a half years in the making. So just mm -hmm. FYI. <laughs> that's cool. Well, I'm really curious just kind of personally to hear about your, I mean, it's probably not completely a transition, but kind of this opening up to this, this other area of business for you. How did you decide, all right, I'm going to go down this route now? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, actually, it's full circle, Sarah. Mm. Being a therapist is my third career. Mm. So right out of college, I worked in Washington, D.C. for a United States senator and right. did that for four years and then went up to New York City and worked with the guy that did his political ads and did issue advocacy advertising. Spent a year in New York and went, oh, I need to do something a little different and then hopped over to Europe and worked with expat English-speaking youth with an international youth organization after some life and death experiences where I realized my resume mm -hmm. and my 401k are not everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I have these experiences, but working with those expat kids, their parents are running the world in leadership and mm -hmm. business and education and world relief efforts. So I'm just started my 17th year in psychotherapy, but I've been feeling this itch, especially after what we've seen going on in our country, mm -hmm. a desire to support those on the front lines that desire to lead and lead with integrity and lead with health and lead with endurance yeah. and resilience and staying in line with what's true. Because the more you really put yourself out there and stand your sacred ground, the critique culture, the critic culture out there is it's like a shark fest. Yeah. And so when Brene Brown was launching her Rising Strong book, she did an interview with Tim Ferriss, who I don't mm -hmm. normally listen to, who I've actually come around to as he's been more vulnerable about his story. Mm. And But there was this comment on that conversation or an excerpt from that podcast interview that really planted the seeds for this new business because I was seeing it in my clinical practice mm. where they're talking about perfectionism. And Tim Ferriss was mm -hmm. kind of talking about how hey, that's a good thing. And my people are that way. And, you know, and mm -hmm. Brene responded with obviously like we're, you know, right. we're perfectionists. Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. But what they brought out, which I thought was so enlightening. And they said, Tim's like, you and I both know people that are really well known that are killing it in their work, but their personal lives are a hot mess. Yep. And what that conversation unpacked was exactly what I was doing and working with in my clinical practice on a micro level was the fact that what made these leaders successful in work, they couldn't translate at home and their yep. home life was yep. taking. Yep. And so that's where this concept of integrated leadership came where I've been taking Brene's work and internal family systems work, which really flips how we look mm -hmm. at critics and imposter experiences and fear and struggle instead of trying to kill it and get rid of it, it's befriending it yep. and unburdening the pain and bringing those two together. These folks have been responding 
like Mm. just loving it and seeing this lightning, like, oh, wow, Mm -hmm. just because I have a doubt, I'm not failing as a leader, you know? And so from that conversation, just built this along with just Brene's methodologies, especially the rising strong, and then obviously the shame resilience work, but the IFS stuff has really been a breath of fresh air in a personal development community that has been so wrought with its own scarcity and its own perfectionism and rigidity around struggle and comparison. So that's been so much fun. And to see these leaders that need to be out there supporting their teams, their communities, their cultures, with health and integrity. So that, and also showing up at home with what matters most too, or wherever they yeah. show up at work or at home, they're aligned with what matters most to them. And so that has been fulfilling and kind of going back to my passion for more of that grassroots politics, but scaling yeah. it, working leaders, and then the advertising PR piece or the youth work. So it, it really feels full circle. That's so awesome. And the one thing that I missed as soon as I got into private practice coming from the addiction rehab world was I missed the opportunity to blow people's minds because because <laughs> when people come to therapy, they are already open, right? And so when I was working with people in addiction recovery, I got to give people this information for the first time about shame and perfectionism and watch people go, holy shit, I have been doing this wrong my whole life. And not that I want to like burst people's bubbles in that way, but just like you said, like giving people an opportunity to recognize that the stuff that makes you successful at work does not make you successful at home. And how do you be a more integrated, authentic self in all of the places? Absolutely. And I feel like now more than ever, we can't fake it. We can't Uh puff up and it's not sustainable. And the hunger for trusting relationships, the hunger for leadership that people feel resonant with, where more leaders are talking about on the other side of their struggle. Yes, I went to therapy. Mm -hmm. Yes, I got some coaching. Yes, I took a sabbatical because I had a face down and here's what I did. Here's Mm -hmm. how I'm rising. And I want to give permission for you to do the same and truly Mm -hmm. do that. Right. I mean, you and I both know that that's, I think, also impacts the dial on the horrible statistics you and I see around mental health and suicide and relationship failure. So to me, it is very holistic and very essential. Are these people coming to you or are you like seeking them? Because I'm just curious about the level of readiness, because I could imagine some people coming and, you know, like Brene has talked about people hiring her, but then don't talk about shame. (laughs) You can talk about anything else, but don't talk about shame. But it's like, that's kind of why we're here. Um, So I'm just kind of curious about that. Well, you know, I'm right now getting a pretty high level executive leadership coaching certification so that I can do this work without hurting my license outside of California. And it's a real developmental model. Interesting. So I'm in this culture of folks coming from corporate and nonprofit and HR. And it's been fascinating to see this kind of, I mean, I know we're on audio, but like this, you got a hand up giving someone the Heisman and the other hand's saying, come here, come here. Right. And so when I've been reaching out to my network and talking about this shift, they're super excited about it. They've been very enthusiastic about sharing this with those in their leadership communities and also reaching out for some support with me. And here, Sarah, this is what's tripped me out. And I told my clinical team this, that I honestly thought that my psychotherapy background would be a detriment that people Mm. go, oh, I don't want to work with her because she's going to be too deep or she might pathologize. But it's the one thing that people say why they want to work with me. Well, I mean, I think it legitimizes the coaching, but that's just me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what they say. And, And then I pursue further and said, have you had psychotherapy before? 
And most of them are like, oh yeah, a little bit or a long time ago. Hmm. It's like the really do the deep dive of the emotional work that you and I do in our clinical work. This is the bridge if yes. it needs to happen. And so I can tease that out and do some deeper coaching work. But where the stuff comes up where I'm like, oh, we're in the zone where you need to go rumble more in the deep end yeah. and be the bridge for that. So that's exciting. Mm. So I feel like it's a both end because I'm in the process of kind of sharing this. I'm like in the beta phase of some of the offerings I have. Mm. So I'm letting people know, but I've been blown away by the responses and the outreach and the feedback. And so I'm excited to really take it to the next level next year. And I think in the corporate arena and more of the higher level business leadership arena, this is like a requirement to have yeah. a leadership coach. It's it's kind of like an accessory mm. that's not pathologized. It's kind of a requirement. Mm. And like, if you're really at this level, you have a coach mm. and even like at Google and some of these other companies, coaching is part of the vernacular there mm. where they see each other. So it's been fascinating to learn that and kind of bridge some of the gaps with my clinical training and what I saw in my corporate and political work. It gives me so much hope because I feel like my world is generally pretty divided. Like my personal life is all therapists. All my friends are therapists. And so everybody around me is doing their work and we all speak the same language. And yes, there's conflict, but it's pretty minimal and we're able to work through it pretty easily. And then I see the client world where People are coming to me because they're in pain and they're struggling, but they're open. And then there's this whole vast part of the universe that I'm like, what, what are people thinking out there? <laughs> so it gives me hope to hear because you're reaching those people, people who are functioning enough that they don't, quote unquote, have to go to therapy, right? They're not presenting with a problem that's going to debilitate their lives as they know it right? Even though we know their souls might be debilitated in other ways because of the pain of striving and all of that jazz. So it's it's really, really cool to hear. Well, and I feel like there's been this fracture in the personal development arena as I've been diving into the coaching and leadership worlds, bifurcated them so much, mm -hmm. at least the way myself and my team work. And I believe the way you work, the psychotherapy, the coaching, the consulting, the mentoring, you know, just peer friendship. We do everything above peer friendship as a psychotherapist. We see diagnosing as a tool for reimbursement for insurance for right. those that have it, but it's not the primary to say you are this. Right. And I'm with you. Some of my dearest friends and colleagues are psychotherapists. I've learned one, especially as I'm trying to build a new company and put language together. We've lost the ability to speak human. We don't speak normal. I know. We, I we, know. We've got, we're broken. <laughs> we're broken. Yeah. Uh, and when I'm out with my husband's colleagues or I'm just hanging out with my mom friends, it goes radio silent sometimes. And 30, right. I'll say something. I'm like, what did I just say? My husband's like, you said something about shame and trauma and the room got quiet. I'm like, uh. dang. But I also feel like, especially in the spirit of your podcast and why I was really intrigued about it. And even in my own professional journey of building Potentia, there's something going on with the personal development helping profession that is disconcerting. And mm -hmm. the, this isn't a state on who people are, mm -hmm. but I've had the privilege to be an adjunct professor and do practicum training. And mm -hmm. I often say, you know, raise your hand and it kind of takes a while mm -hmm. for me to do that. But I'm like, Raise a hand if you ever think or are thinking, who do I think I am to be here to try and help other people? I don't have yep. my stuff together. Yep. And they'll slowly do that. And then so I'm mm -hmm. like, here's the fact. We are all hot messes, but there's two groups. Yes. There's the group that knows they're a hot mess. <laughs> yes. And there's the group that says they're not. Yes. Don't be in that group. 
just don't be in that group. And there's this weird protectant around the vulnerability of not having our stuff together and this really Mm -hmm. subtle power over where we default to go, oh, that's just their resistance. That's their protection. Oh, that's their mother daughter issue. And we do that to each other. And then we get like in these power struggles over theory. And Mm -hmm. so I joke and say, I have a a master's degree in scarcity, Mm -hmm. like how to keep my license. I know how to keep my license. And I I don't want to diminish the incredible experience I had in my program, but so much of the learning I did was outside of it and after Mm -hmm. it. Oh yeah, 100%. And because so many people in our field have been hurting and made some really horrible choices and did some things that required laws and regulations and ethics up the wazoo, the ability for creativity and innovation has been squelched. Yep. So that's where the coaching world, it's like the wild, wild west. And mm-hmm. you and I, we deal with things that go wrong there with face down. Yeah. But yeah. There's the freedom if you have the entrepreneur spirit. So it's an interesting tension. And then I remember hiring someone who stayed with me very briefly. He said, I've done my trauma work. I'm over it. What? He, Red flag. This person wasn't even 30. Uh, you don't even know who you are before 30. Good God. <laughs> Right. We don't have to swim in the deep end of all of our stuff. Right. But I don't know if it's cultivated enough to really be vulnerable. As Brene defines it as risk, uncertainty and emotional exposure. Mm -hmm. There's something going on. And yeah, I think our field of one is it respected. Right. And so we've absorbed some of that too with the, the message around, oh, you just give advice to people. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the thing that's been coming up for me a lot is, you know, shame is obviously at the bottom of like everything. And I, I'm trying to figure out a way to do a research study on denial because I think denial is the mechanism that protects people from experiencing the shame. And I'm curious about people who have, I guess, built a tolerance to do the shame resilience work versus people who don't and why that happens. Like, what is that? Because I do feel like when I do speaking gigs, I'll see two types of therapists, right? And it's the type that I know I'm fucked up and it's such a relief to hear you say you're fucked up too and let's do this together. And then I'll have people who like, you know, give me ones on my evaluation and say I talk too much about feelings. And so we clearly know that those people are hot messes and not aware of it. It, oh, it scares me, right? Like, yeah, I did a self-compassion seminar and the person said I talk too much about feelings. And in my head, I was like, why did you come to a self-compassion seminar? <laughs> If you didn't want to talk about feelings. Yeah. And that's a whole nother conversation about feedback and therapist training on that. But talk about the protector of denial. And Mm -hmm. I feel like you're onto something really big, even just naming as the protector of denial. And that protector, if it doesn't relax. Right. And we lead from that and it's other cluster of protectors. Right. Those are blind spots. We call them blind spots, right? But we don't know. I've got it together. Versus the fears and concerns of that protector. If that protector were not to do its job, what is it afraid would happen? Yes. And what does it want to do if it didn't have to do that job? Those are the questions I would love to find out. And then I feel like that protector doesn't feel like it has to lead. And yeah, there's just been some more healing work because you've seen this with Brene's work. And this is some of probably the most common conversation is you know, the gift that Brene's done to make these things so simple and easily accessible. Yes, yes. But then translating it to lifelong practices has been where the wires get crossed, right? Yes. And sometimes people mm-hmm. think if they can talk it, yes. that they're, they're living it, that's, right? Yes, because that's the piece where I'm like, 
I think Brene needed us as therapists to be able to help people figure out how do you actually do this? What does this actually like look like? What are the steps to practicing it? And what I see with clients and with leaders and with our colleagues is we're so in our heads. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. And we say in this in the Daring White community, shame work is trauma work, trauma work is shame work. Mm-hmm. So if everything is rooted in shame, and, and this is kind of our premise as, as a clinical team, but also for me as a leadership developer, that we all have trauma. We all get it. We get a pass and yes. then we all have trauma. And it's not just like a car accident or child abuse. Yep. There's betrayal. There's rejection. There's grief and loss mm-hmm. of a dream of resources, of physical abilities, of illness, you know, and we minimize those. And mm-hmm. so I feel like this is what we have to do now is start to normalize being human and not right. the Tony Robbins toxic masculinity. I can, yeah. feel, <laughs> I can feel you seething when I say that. Right. Yeah. You well, know, and like there's so many motivational speakers who do a great job motivating people, but you know what? You need to give people tools. That's what pisses me off about generalized self-help. And I've had so many clients come to me and say, I've read all the self-help books. Why don't I get any better? And it's like, A, you haven't gotten to the root of the problem, which is shame. And B, nobody's given you any tools to figure out how to practice these things. And I feel like even the bridge to the tools is that there's a need for the tools. Right, right. Because here's the thing I still fall into. I don't know if you do. I have these smarty pants parts that just like, I got it. I got it. (laughs) Oh, I know everyone else uses it, but I'm I'm the exception. And I feel like I'm getting better at catching that going, no, no, you are not Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have a Wonder Woman part of you, yes, and mm-hmm. likes to kick butt. But there's that, again, it goes back to vulnerability that yeah. in the beginner's mindset, and we're not trained to have a beginner's mindset in the clinical arena. Right. And I am just concerned about that and to see the damage and what I had to unpack and unlearn or how it fostered my own perfectionism and shame already. Mm-hmm. And that we value experience and authority and all of that. But I feel like you can have a beginner's mindset and be really confident. Oh, yeah. And the tools, I mean, again, we can operationalize this, but I feel like it goes back to what you were talking about is, but if I admit I need shame resilience tools, that means I have shame. Right. And I can't even acknowledge that because that's going to activate the shit out of everything. Right. We're slowing that down. That happens in a millisecond. Right. And you asked earlier, like, what's the threat if I look at that? And for some people yes. that I've seen in my life, the threat is annihilation of the self that they've created. Yes. And not being able to function. I, right. I won't be able to work. Right. I'll lose my connections. Yep. Mm-hmm. And there's not a trust in the ability to handle the face down of the shift. And faith in the universe, faith in, you know, if you believe in spirituality, you know, faith that you are going to be able to traverse this. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, and and faith is a huge, huge guiding principle for me. And I feel like believing in the unseen Mm -hmm. feels a little ridiculous to the intellectual parts of me. Mm -hmm. And every time I do, because believing in the unseen is also believing in myself. Yes. And the sacredness that I am born of. And so I feel like that, that there's something holy about faith that maybe mm-hmm. is a little different than some of the common cultures, but that when we are taking that leap into, and that again, vulnerability, because I don't know the outcome, but right. I believe in showing up. And I believe that this today isn't what it's supposed to be. And I don't know what tomorrow will look like, but I got to move forward right. into the unknown. 
And to feel vulnerable means to be courageous. To be courageous means to tolerate fear. But to tolerate fear means you have to build shame resilience. Right. And from a spiritual perspective, if I don't have faith, that means I'm looking at things from the ego perspective, which is all about outcome, right? If I have a desire for fame or money or, you know, whatever X, Y, Z, that's all attached to ego. And I guess that that means shame is attached to ego. And so if we can transcend the ego through shame resilience, holy shit, Rebecca, we're coming up with some good shit here today. Good thing we're recording this. (laughs) (laughs) Right? You are the leader of this conversation. No, the parts of me that desire, I was just thinking of Enneagram because I'm like Yes. Oh my God, you read my mind. What are you? I'm a three. Me too. Do you know the subtypes? I'm still working on you talking about wings or subtypes? No, subtypes, because those are fascinating. I have a feeling we're the same. I'm drawn to eights. There's something about eights Mm. that I still am wondering. We can talk about that later. But the thing that blew me away is, of course, they're so shame driven. So we're studying shame. Mm -hmm. And so the parts of me that want to be seen, I want to be relevant when they feel the presence of my own calm and clarity and courage, yep. they relax and say, mm-hmm. oh, I'm seen by you. I'm seen by God. Like for me, that's how I reference mm-hmm. it. And that's enough. And to say that even out loud, I mean, parts of my system just call bullshit. But mm-hmm. I feel like we are so in our heads and we're all about bottom line and results. Mm-hmm. And listen, insurance, we don't bill insurance mm-hmm. unless you have a PPO, but we know the treatment plan model Yep. In California, this is where I had to get out of the agency work. It felt so out of integrity and the scarcity of it. It's literally budgeted into the state of California's budget to go back to all of the Medi-Cal agencies that receive money and reimbursements and take money back when they find errors in the notes. Fuck you. Ugh. I don't know if that's changed, but that was what was going on when I was in my internship and early in my licensure and going, no. I can't work in that environment because then my perfectionism and shame, I I was more worried about my notes and losing money than I was about care. And the notes were so tedious and copious. We've just gone off the reservation. And Mm -hmm. I I, I don't want to chuck the medical model. I think some people do. I don't. I think there's incredible body of research. It's it's deeply broken and traumatized itself. But but yeah, so that's why I'm saying the scarcity and that how can we sit with someone who's in the muck of all that if we haven't continued to do the muck of ours? And I, I don't know. I think sometimes I don't have the time. I see therapists really frugal. And then when, oh, that's too expensive. Well, that's too expensive. And maybe that's just my personality. But I'm like, this I'm all in. I'll pay for this right? therapy, this training. And that's another interesting component of our relationship with money. I've seen that's where sets people apart on charging what they're worth, on boundaries around that, on investing in their trainings as part of a team value. I joke and say we're professional check writers in our field. (laughs) And I just don't feel like we talk about self-care, but I just didn't see it modeled in my program at all. I saw very exhausted, very overbooked, deeply caring, talented Mm -hmm. people, but not living lives that I wanted. And I perpetuated that in my own business for a while. So I had to regroup and say, no, this is not who I am and had some hard, hard lessons and rising from that has been the best thing that was, I can't lead if I'm not from a lead and cultivated space, if I'm not doing it personally. Mm -hmm. And it's really done in the private way. It's really in that space between the ears, heart and soul. Mm -hmm. And it's not something I always have to talk about. I don't know. So are you a healer? I'm a healer cultivator. I get nervous about that. I won't Mm -hmm. claim I am a healer, but I cultivate that space and that experience. Absolutely. I like that healing cultivator. 
Yeah, I read that in your show notes. I was like, oh, hell no. That's why we have this thing in California called The Therapist. It's part of the California MFT and in the centerfold. We call it the centerfold. And that's where all the people who therapists who did the crappy things like, Mm. you know, use their vacation rental homes for fees for therapy and stuff. So I get nervous. That's for me. That's how I take that. It doesn't have to be that way for everyone. But cultivate spaces or help other leaders and help other clinicians be able to cultivate healing environments and healing communities. Absolutely. So I'm going to guess the answer to the wounded healer question. How do you feel about that? Well, if you deny (laughs) that you are, I'm nervous. Right? (laughs) Exactly. Am I a wounded healer cultivator? Yes. Mm -hmm. Am I just a wounded human? Yes. Mm -hmm. Are my wounds raging and inflamed right now? No. Mm -hmm. I mean, not right now for the first time in a long time Mm. or maybe ever, which is beautiful, but some of that might just be age. The wounded healer mindset is essential. Mm-hmm. And it grounds us and it humanizes us. And I think those sometimes you could swing the spectrum of I'm so wounded and we're yeah. going to bottom it or I'm going to lead from my pain and change. I see this with activism a lot. Yes. I saw that bottom politics. I see in now what's going on. People are stepping up and standing for things they deeply believe in, but they're leading with their wounds, not inspired by them. Yep. So yeah, I guess I would say I'm a wounded human cultivating healing. There we go. <laughs> That's how I would tweet it. Yeah. (laughs) It's just so interesting to me. That's another research project to do is the way that people answer this question and the people who push the healer name away. It's really all this fear of what people who have called themselves healers before, what atrocities they have committed and not wanting to be associated with that. That's literally every time. And for me, though, there's something like I'm not God. I think that's where it comes down to me. Mm-hmm. I think the ultimate healing comes from a holy place and from the individual. Oh, yeah. That's where my response really comes from. And secondary, I am all about just the things that I mystery and awe and people that are tapping into things that are what we call woo woo. I am so curious about all of that. And I have a whole place for curiosity to an extent. There's sometimes almost when there's no boundaries or safety doesn't seem yeah. to be happening. I, yeah. It's hard to stay present. So I think you're right. There is a rejection of I'm going to a healer and there's a core value of mine going, you already have it in you. Mm -hmm. You already have it in you. And I want to help you uncover that. Right. And that's where some of that response. But I think you're right. That is kind of a bookend of my response too. Mm -hmm. Well, and just thinking about this idea of you have everything within you, kind of a random aside, but thinking about faith and spirituality and the difference between like I've done a lot of reading on Buddhism and the way that Buddhism talks about not really God, I guess. I don't know. I don't I don't know enough to really say exactly, but essentially we all have Buddha nature within us, so God is within us and we have the capacity to uncover that versus, you know, Christian ethos that there's original sin and we have to go outside of ourselves to then be healed. I'm curious your thoughts on that. I have lots of thoughts. This is a rumble that me and my team have. Most of us actually went to seminary. Really? And do you identify as Christian? I do. I -hmm. do. And I claim that, but I don't claim anything else people are seeing in culture right now. Right, (laughs) right, right. And so, but here's the thing. I'm so glad you brought this up because there's what we call the total depravity part of original sin and Mm -hmm. like all of these things from Calvin, right? But what I realized, there's also this Imago Dei theology Hmm. that everyone is an image bearer of God. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and Brene talks about that in Braving the Wilderness. If we are mm-hmm. dehumanizing and not seeing right. the face of God in every person in front of us, what I realized in session, I was doing Imago Day. And then mm. outside, I was living in this total depravity construct that Ooh, was out of alliance. And so when I went to my colleague Dan's workshop, kind of unpacking these with therapists and other community leaders, it clicked because I was also deep into my IFS kind of read going into that and realizing that what Dick Schwartz calls the self really is the soul. And if mm-hmm, I really believe that mm-hmm. is the place that houses our sacredness yeah. and our holiness and that we just can uncover whether, whatever the protectors are into there, that's just how I've been doing work my whole career. Mm-hmm. And so it just, it clicked for me. And so the total depravity theology I've moved away from to even the people that are saying and doing things that are reprehensible. It's been good for my own well-being to see that. Yes. That's Brene's living big with generosity. And then it doesn't make my soul dark and I'm not leading from that anger. So Mm -hmm. that was a fundamental pivot because of the rigidity and the harm done. And again, Mm -hmm. I'm not supposed to be throwing out all components of that theology necessarily, but it was shame prone. It is shame prone. And it was out of congruence exactly. with this work with Brene's research and with IFS. I'm like, this is, and that's yep. not how I sat with people, no matter what they said, did, right. whatever. And so there's been that pivot where we've talked about is just everyone in front of us, everyone who walks through our doors, no matter what their story is, it doesn't matter. We don't have to speak about God. It doesn't matter. Right. And to me, that's been essential in the constructs that we're living with faith and regardless of whether we, we go deeper on it. So I'm really glad you brought that up because I think reading Braver in the Wilderness was like, I keep reading that. <laughs> because I feel yeah, like it's, it's so timely. Yeah. And the dehumanization. Who are we to say who's worthy right. of our affirmation of our support if I really believe this? So Mm-hmm. So I feel like the Imago day is everyone's an image bearer. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not treating that way, then I'm hurting my own well-being, let alone other people around me and the community I'm serving. That's if that's how I'm leading. Yeah. I literally had a conversation with, and it's funny, like I'll do these shame groups in, in a detox center. And so it's usually pretty like just psychoeducational, but often we get kind of philosophical. And I mentioned that belief that I believe that everyone deep down is good and that people who do bad things, it's because there's trauma and blah, blah, blah. And so one of the, one of the participants was like, so you think that Ted Bundy is a good person? And so I said, yeah, I don't know all of the details about what happens to the brain to create psychopathology, but I'm guessing that something happened. I know they've talked about head injuries potentially leading to psychopathy and and whatnot, but it was so interesting. And then the other thing I wanted to say in addition to this is one of my really big struggles is judgment and recognizing that I have this belief That, you know, when it comes to big things, I will be so generous and believe that you didn't want to hurt me. My husband might say something shitty and I'm like, oh, you're just hungry. I know it's okay. But cut me off in traffic and I will flip you off faster than anything else. And I will be like, you're a dummy. (laughs) And you don't call people dummies. You get saltier than that. Oh, I do. I actually, though, someone (laughs) literally like walked in front of my car today and I literally was like, dummy. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm trying. I'm really, really trying because I want to make that belief more integrated into all areas of my life. And I that's the work. Right. That is. Yeah. It's the nuance. It's not. the Yes, I believe these things that I'm declaring. It's the little nuts and bolts. And there's nothing like driving that will tease out growth edges. 
But I want to circle back to that conversation talking about Mm -hmm. Ted Bundy and the person asked whether he was a good person. So I get that a lot too. Mm -hmm. But Adolf Hitler, you know, both my husband and I are come from Jewish descent. So we get Mm -hmm. that a lot too. And what I do is, what does it do for you? What comes up for you at the idea that there's some humanity in him? Right. And it's like, I can't. He killed six million plus people. I don't want to give him anything. And it's like, what if that has nothing to do about what you're giving him? Is it what it is for you? Right. Because then you're so attached. And again, right. I don't, I'm not sure I'm someone who believes in total detachment, but I feel like there's this conversation that with grace and compassion and empathy in such a just world culture we live in that we're supposed to let them fry and right. we enjoy and relish in that. And when right. we kind of do a, the U-turn, the Y-O-U turn and check in and go, what are my fears and concerns about extending any kind of compassion mm-hmm. or grace? Really what it is, how do I sit in front of someone, the idea of someone who did something so horrible, who got to a place that they were so detached, so dark, mm-hmm. so evil, whatever the theories are yeah, <laughs> on that. Yeah. And again, it isn't over-functioning. It isn't making excuses for it. It isn't about right. not having accountability. Exactly. Yes. That's where I feel like we've lost any mm-hmm. kind of compassion and empathy towards people who've made horrible mistakes. And then we're talking about right. the extremes of the extremes. Right. But when we bring it back to things that we see on the news on the regular, violence in the streets or things that we see in people in leadership saying and doing, And we miss the point that if we are hating and demonizing, Mm -hmm. how toxic that is for our soul. And that's a tricky one because it's like, no, I have no desire to be around sociopaths Mm -hmm. and mass murderers and people that are sexist, racist. I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't. But then I'm like, oh, wait, (laughs) but I would have no world when I start to shrink that down. (laughs) I would have no world. I'm like, I'm better than you. Your sexism and your racism and your homophobia and your ableism, you know, you're just two this versus I need to get out of my echo chamber and I need to start practicing driving the car figuratively, but literally. And when I have the flash of judgment of you dummy, mm-hmm. going, okay, that's the work. That is just the work. And to take this further too, like, I think the reaction of what comes up in you if you have to think of of Hitler or Ted Bundy as having some good in them, it's fear. And it's fear of not being able to distinguish what's okay and not okay, right? Because it's folks who haven't done the work to live in the gray and hold the duality. But I think the more work I'm doing on that myself, the more I realize that is just the condition of the human brain. Like in order to like feel safe, we need to feel like we can put things in boxes and then put it away. And then we don't have to deal with it. Because when you talk about ableism and racism and homophobia and all that, all of us are that. Exactly. Because we live in a white supremacist culture. And and, we're straight white women. Right. (laughs) Well, I'm bi, but so. Oh, I didn't know that. Straight-ish. Yeah, it's all right. I'm straight straight (laughs) white woman owning that. And so, yes, to all of that, because I also think the other bookend to what you said is the fear of losing community because of the group, the group think. Yeah. If I say, oh, I'm uncomfortable with how we're talking about this this person, this situation, Mm -hmm. and then afraid of being misunderstood or kicked out, we stay silent. And I feel like that's been a big chunk of my life where people wouldn't believe that necessarily. (laughs) But I feel like I did choose silence over Mm. courage for fear of rumbling the community. And I can't do that anymore. It's still scary, though, because the desire for belonging is primal. It's so interesting because I'm a three on the Enneagram as well. And I was just thinking that my threeness was the thing that propelled me to speak out because I was always the truth teller in my family. I'm the one who, if someone's like doing the group think, I'm like, 
how about we play devil's advocate here? But my goal has been the same as your goal is to, if I can call this out, whoever follows me with that, that's my community instead of sticking with the like larger community. And I agree with you. That's I'm like listening to you going, oh, that was the story of my life. I always going, well, what about mm-hmm. this? Or what about mm-hmm. this? But there was a point where I think I acquiesced for a while. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was my daughter's autism diagnosis, where literally how people responded to her mm-hmm. and her diagnosis and holding space with her, our whole network family and not family changed wow. based on she's helped us pick our friends. Because of how our values and how we wanted to raise her, how we wanted life, what we needed as her parents. And people were like, I can't be around all her questions or when is she going to be fixed? You know, Mm -hmm. it was like a lovely, easy self-edit. They just, okay, yeah, it's just great. And it was lonely and dark for a while. And now I just look at this world that you know, who she is and who she cultivates. Yeah. And so, I mean, I admire your strength. There was, I think part of my own trauma story though, was if you push too long, mm-hmm. it could get really, really bad. Yeah. So I think that was the part that I didn't hang in there long enough. Like you did then go, I'm going to follow and find my tribe. Mm-hmm. And I definitely have had incredible people in my life, but there's just nothing like it is right now. And so I, I admire that about you. And I think threes, we exhaust people because we're always yeah. like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> and then the messages about being a woman and strong mm-hmm. and you know, all the stuff. I just got a new Enneagram book and it shows the different subtypes. I'm going to guess you and I are the same subtype and I can't remember off the top of my head, but I'm going to screenshot and send to you what I think okay. and you'll have to read it and let me know. But all right. So we're coming to the end of the hour and I want to make sure you have time to share where people can find you, especially leaders, because it sounds like that's really where you're shifting into right now. Where do they find you? What else do you want people to know? Absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah. Well, people are based in San Diego, Southern California. They can find me at potentiatherapy.com. So potentia without an L, that's the Latin term, or on Facebook and Instagram on potentia therapy. And people can find me personally at RebeccaChing.com on the website or RebeccaChingMFT on Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook. Awesome. Is there anything else you want to share? I mean, I feel like we could continue this for like three hours at least and still not scratch the surface. <laughs> I'm noticing we touched on a lot of things and my system's mm-hmm. like, oh, we didn't finish that. But I just really am grateful for you having these conversations Thank you for bringing up the topic to me about Wounded Healer. Got me to get Mm -hmm. some clarity around that and for your perspective on that. But I really appreciate your leadership and voice in this space. So thank you for showing up day in and day out. I really appreciate you. Hmm. I appreciate you. (laughs) My editor always makes fun of me. There's always a love fest at the end where we're like, oh, my God, I love you. No, I love you. We're like best friends. Oh, my God. And she's like, I'm going to put together like just one podcast of just all of that. So I'm sure that she's listening right now, just rolling her eyes. Well, it takes a lot to show up and have hard conversations. Yeah. And I think people take that for granted. And you're always on the front line doing that. So I just definitely want to extend gratitude and honor that you brought me on here to add to the conversation. So thank you. Well, thank you. Isn't she lovely? And now I want to start singing this Stevie Wonder song. But will I get sued for that? I can't get music like that on the show. If I sing it, does it count? No, I'll sing it. Isn't she lovely? 
I don't know any of the rest of the words. So hopefully I don't get sued for that just little piece. Don't tell on me. Don't tell Stevie Wonder and his family. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Rebecca. To find more information about her, you can go to our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast and check out all the cool things that she's doing in the world. Follow her on Instagram and Facebook and you can be friends with her too. Thank you, as always, to the impeccable Creative Imposter Studios for the editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Thank you again for tuning in. Until next time, bye-bye.